Pod this. My name is Andy Moore. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined today by Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What's up, dude? How are you? Man, I'm coronatastic. Coronatastic. That doesn't sound that great, to be honest. I, d- I don't have corona, just to be clear. Did you get tested? Uh, uh, no. Well, I so I guess I could have corona. I don't have any reason to believe that I have corona at this point. I have I have no symptoms, so that's. Uh, well, but you and we have talked week after week, Scott. That oh yeah, symptomatic oh, yeah. doesn't mean jack. I mean that's that you're one correct uh, and two, yes, you are correct. But I I probably would not get tested unless I have symptoms, and my reasoning goes like this. So I work and I see patients every day. And that is a job that is difficult to do without being like close to people, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. closer than six feet. Now I wear a mask and my patients always wear a mask, but you know, a uh, little baby is pretty tough to uh, get them to wear a mask. So I'm probably have a fairly, you know, as, as risk of being exposed goes, like I have a fairly high occupational risk exposure. So if you were going to test me to see if I was an asymptomatic carrier just based on my occupational risk, you have to do that like every day. So well, I would, I mean, I, do they, and we can cut this part out, but like, do they take temperatures? Like I would almost assume that they should be testing primary care providers of all sorts. Like I know at variety care, they, they do temperature checks on all staff twice a day. Um, to catch it as early as they could, right? But I would expect that they would almost at some point start doing routine testing for all healthcare workers as a precaution so that yeah. you're not an asymptomatic carrier. Sure. No, that makes sense. And yeah, so at our clinic, you have to be masked at all times while you're in the building. You mask, mask where you come in, mask when you're walking out. Um, two, we do temperature checks every day. We do a temperature check as soon as you walk in the building, you get a temperature check. And then, uh, we don't do twice daily. We do once daily. But if, you know, certainly if anybody's feeling bad or feels warm or whatever, then we would check again. Yeah. Um, and you're right. I think, I think that, I think that doing routine asymptomatic screening of healthcare providers makes a ton of sense. If you have the testing capacity, right? But like, you know, our testing is much, much better than it was. Do we have the capacity to just randomly test um, every healthcare provider once every two weeks? Which, if you're going to do it, is how you'd want. You know what I mean? Like that's how right. you would. Right. You would need to do it, and and no, right? So, um, well, and so we, like, do, we don't have that capacity. You know, last week we talked. Uh, we mentioned that because he had just put it on Twitter that Paul Money's the reporter from Oklahoma Watch mm-hmm. tested positive um, last week. Right. And, uh, and essentially so, had no symptoms, right? Like he, he still has running. no symptoms. Yeah, he, yeah. And he still has no symptoms. Um, and it's a week later, a week and a half later. And his wife got tested that same day or the next day. And then when she got results a couple of days later, they were negative. And so I said, don't you have to go get tested again in a couple of weeks, right? Because just because you're negative today doesn't mean that you won't get it tomorrow. You know, like. Right. And she was like, yeah, I think that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, right. And so she was going to call to, to confirm that, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, and this is, you know, we just, as, as much as our testing capacity is, you know, has been improved and, you know, our leadership deserves to be commended for that. Um, it still is, in my opinion, it's still less than what it should be because of situations like that. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah. And 
yeah, various various other reasons. I think we should point out that we're recording this on Friday, July third. Um, Bailey, I think, got hung up with something else and isn't able to join us today, so she may join us halfway through. But um, in case anyone's wondering where Bailey is, it's two episodes in a row. Um, oh no, not two episodes. She just missed the election night coverage yeah. because she was because working she, at a polling place because she was performing actual public service right right <laughs> um but uh on the covid note uh so yes was that yesterday that texas governor greg abbott yeah mandated masks for everybody in all public places yeah right and i yes and i uh i tweeted at the governor saying maybe it would make sense for us to do that before our hospitals are capacity and our pediatric hospitals are admitting adults and you know we're facing the kind of disaster they have in texas he didn't reply. Maybe he saw it. I don't know. <laughs> but right. uh, I, you, I, you, you tweeted at Governor Stitt. Yes. Not uh, Governor Abbott. Not Governor Abbott. No. Um, I mean, because like, I'm glad that they did this in Texas. You know, I don't want to say too little too late, but I think if they'd done that a month ago, they'd be in dramatically better shape than where they are right now. And well, I think right, for, us, for us to avoid being where Texas is in a month, it would be great if we'd mandate masks here now. Um, it's, I mean, yes, because people perhaps, I mean, not perhaps people have unnecessarily died between then and now. Right. right. But the fact that they are mandating masks now should mean that they will begin to curb new infections quicker than before, perhaps. Well, maybe not as, as quick as like closing everything down, but right. they should begin to curb new infections and hopefully get a handle on this epidemic before it just spins out of control entirely although it's interesting uh i want to say there was analysis who did this i saw it a couple times this week there was an analysis by some a, a like reputable think tank i want to say the east coast um yeah, or was it elites. was it the it was it might it might have been the u.s chamber okay it was like somebody that you would not expect primarily an economic based think tank um or maybe it was Moody's, actually. Anyway, they did an analysis that said, um, what we expect, like, what we expect would happen from, like, another round of lockdowns, which could be necessary, um, to curb the spread of the virus is, like, a, a further subtraction of 5% from GDP. Um, but they found that masks could actually, like, masks would effectively substitute for a lockdowns. So universal masking would have right. a similar efficacy to lockdowns without the resultant negative pressure on, on GDP. So if everybody masks, you get essentially the same effect as you do from a lockdown, but without the negative economic impact, or at least not nearly as large. Um, um, so now you have even groups like that that are advocating for universal masking. The fact that we don't do it just just blows my mind. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, this week, Governor Stitt did uh, encourage masks. On Tuesday, he wore a mask at the press conference and um, emphasized the optional nature of it but did say like everyone should do it it's up to you but everyone should do it yeah can i also just say he was standing there with his mask right and he added around he's like he's like and really i mean really oklahomans it's not a big deal see you just do that it's just that simple and he put it on say see not a big deal and we're like yeah that's the shit we've been saying for a month while you've been telling everybody it's not necessary so like quit acting like you've been on the mask train for a month and like Oh, yeah, everybody should wear masks. Look, look how easy it is. You've been saying for a month that you're not going to impinge on people's freedoms and require them to wear masks. So just stop it. 
Like well, just, he's still said that I don't. He hasn't. I don't think he said that they're not necessary. But he's just saying it's not necessary to mandate them. He's trying to put the onus on the individual person, right? And trying. I I think I understand his angle on this. However, if one thing we've learned in human history, it's that in certain cases, human beings cannot be relied upon to do the right thing of their own free will. Yeah, I think his angle on it is that. Um, being one of the governors who mandated mask wearing will be a really bad look in a Republican presidential primary. That's his uh, angle on it. Right. <laughs> that's his, 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 I mean, that's my, that's, that's my opinion. But uh, <laughs> I mean, that maybe. Is undoubtedly true. Um, we will talk about this more in a minute, but, uh, this week, the, well, we talk about it right now, the Oklahoma Employment Securities Commission, which we, we referenced last week, right? The OESC, that's mm-hmm. the, the office, the agency that oversees unemployment for the state has a huge backlog, right? Thousands of people have been unable to get their benefits for a wide range of reasons. Um, a lot of that comes down to the fact that the agency's budget has been cut year mm-hmm. after year. They have fewer and fewer, they have hundreds fewer staff every year. And they have a computer system that was built 40 years ago, literally last century. And, and it is not able to, it's slow, even on good days, and yeah. when you've got thousands of claims, all of a sudden, it's just, like, crippled. Um, so they had two events this week at the Reed Conference Center in Midwest City. So they closed a couple offices and moved everything out there, brought in a bunch of extra claims agents, and their goal has been to, like, serve, uh, I think that it's been capped at about 500 people a day. I mean, how many they get it, was like, it was like 125 a day, right? Like that's right. Yeah, I mean, they, it's like it's it's 500 a day is like four times what they were doing. That's exactly right. So they did two this week. They're going to do four next week, and then some the week after in Tulsa. Uh, and so between this week and next week, that's three thousand people that they'll be able to help. And, and the, the list is down to like five ish thousand, right, of people that are waiting, or is it still? I really don't know. Okay. How big, I haven't seen how big the list is, but. Um, I had some friends out there and a bunch of people that went out there and from all the photos I've seen and, and the reports, the they were handing out masks at the door and doing temperature checks and by and large, like everyone was wearing masks without issue. Yeah. And so that's a good thing, right? Because it I think, you know, when you it's a it's a big open space, it's still indoors, but people were able to spread out mm-hmm. um, pretty well. But you still know like it's not ideal, but yeah. it was a hundred degrees on Wednesday, so it's not like you could have an outdoor event um, with a bunch of computers. And so I think that's, it was, a, 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 for me, a reaffirmation that people will do the right thing yeah. um, with even a tiny nudge, right? They're just handing them a mask and then the social pressure of everyone else there wearing masks means those remaining few definitely do. Yeah. Even the folks that like were going outside to smoke would still wear a Keep mask inside and then come out, take it off, go walk away. I think there's definitely been an uptick in maskage. I mean, we went today for the first time. We went for the first time to a uh, to a non grocery store store because we just had to pick up a couple things for uh, the house. And this was a place that was a mandating mask wearing, asking you not to touch any mer- merchandise, and you know it had kind of markings on the floor for people to keep their distance. And I mean, I I felt very safe. Like you know, I would prefer to be able to like handle the things that I want to buy before I take it home and like not have to wear the mask. But if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. And we are now joined by Ms. Bailey Perkins. Hi, Bailey. How are you? Hey, everybody. I'm good. 
How y'all doing? We're doing great. Good. Happy Friday on this holiday yes. weekend. Happy uh, Friday to you too. Um, we are off today uh, with Rejo Food Bank because this day observes July 4th since it falls on a weekend this year. And so sorry for being late. No, you're totally right. fine. You're fine. Um, I'm, I'm also off today and it feels amazing <laughs> to, to not be at work. I worked today. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's the way it goes. Um, so we let's do a, a quick run through of some of the election results. For those of you who happen to tune in on Tuesday night, uh, Scott and I were able to do a uh, election night coverage kind of live stream. Um, Bailey couldn't participate because she, as we said earlier, she was working at a polling location. And so maybe let's do a quick recap of the outcome of some of the notable races that happened this week. And then Bailey, I know that uh, Scott and I are interested and I know you want to share about your experience because this is the first time you worked at a, at a polling place. So uh, I'll start by talking about state question 802. So that was the Medicaid expansion, which passed uh, much more narrowly than I think most people expected. It was pretty yeah. broadly expected to pass, but that it ended up just being a few thousand votes. Um, well, actually, when they did some polling a few weeks prior to the vote, I, I'm trying to remember if it was sooner poll or if it was a different poll, but they mentioned that the vote was expected to be narrow, especially with um, the development within, um, you know, less than 30 days of the election for um, PACs against state question 802 from Americans for Prosperity um, with the governor's um disapproval of it and, and several mm. other factors um, to where there was a, a text message campaign uh, where people on Twitter were sharing um, the text messages that they were getting from Linda with Americans for Prosperity asking people to, to vote no. And so right. um, that didn't shock me that there was a good turnout of people um, showing up to vote no since they were um, really trying to ramp up that grassroots campaign with the perspective that Hey, there's going to be a hundred million dollar cost to this. Tell them that you want to vote no. Right, which is a little ridiculous because just a few months ago, the legislature voted both chambers to fund Medicaid expansion for the and the governor vetoed it. Right. Well, he first he asked them to fund it, yeah. and then they did fund it, and then he was like, "No, never mind." Um, yeah, he vetoed it because he was like, "Well, see what happened was that the economy <laughs> crashed because of the coronavirus." And now it's going to cover like 200,000 people, and that's just too many. So stop. Yeah. It's going to give even more people health care now, and that's bad because, you know, money. So that's true. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so it passed again, and there were some uh, hot takes on Twitter, as there always are, about because there was a map of that was published uh, about yeah. it passing you know like by county well again i think it's ridiculous to compare counties in yes. oklahoma because there are counties that have a population of i, I think between 20 and thirty thousand, and then there are right. counties that have like a million right and so that is a a factor of a hundred like it's an enormous uh difference in size and so saying that oh well it didn't pass in this rural county well 10 of those rural counties have the same number of people as one of the urban counties. And so you can't, you can't look at it at a county level. And, and yeah. so it's based on 50% plus a one. Right. So 
there may have been areas where it failed by, you know, uh, failed by, you know, 48%, right? So there could have been 48% of the people in that county who voted yes for state question 802. But in a map like that, it just shows that it didn't pass in that area, even though it may have been close to, had a significant population of the folks within that county still supported. Right. Yeah, it's and, the, the Twitter narratives, the Twitter narratives on 802, I feel like have been, I mean, there have been some really great coverage out there. Like Oklahoma Watch has had some really good coverage in 802. Um, but some of the Twitter narratives and Twitter takes have been really, really terrible on both sides, right? Like there's the Twitter, there's the Twitter narrative kind of from the more conservative that I've seen some elected leaders put out that shows, you know, that like, that if you look at it geographically, geographically, most areas of the state voted no, like, see, this is, this is why it needs to change or whatever. And it's like, no, just like what you were saying, Bailey, like, this is not an electoral college cut type thing, right? Where it's like, you have to win a certain number of counties for shit to pass. Like you get 50% of the vote. And if you get one more, it passes. It's that simple. Right. And so they, they put these maps up and they're like, see, most people in Oklahoma don't want this. No, no, actually most, most people do want it as evidenced right. by the fact that it passed. Right. So, so most people do want it. Number one. But then the other really bad take is the Oklahoma Democratic Party put out this absolute, I mean, it was just a terrible tweet. I'm surprised it's not been deleted, um, where they posted that map and they said, this is what it looks like to vote against your own interests. And misinformation is devastating to like vote, like basically saying everybody who doesn't live in the city of Oklahoma is like been brainwashed, subject to propaganda. And like voting against their own interest. And that's like, it's condescending. It's shitty. It's also has the benefit of not being true, right? Um, or doesn't have, it also does not have the benefit of being true. Um, you know, I just, Andy, you pointed out a Twitter thread from uh, Dan Wade, who he did a, a very cursory, but pretty impressive um, analysis of yes votes by precinct level stratified against uh, income and shows that there's a, it's, I mean, it's not like a one-to-one, -one, but there is a, a clear correlation of people with higher incomes voting no and people with lower incomes voting yes on 802. So that's number one. But even aside from that, there has been, especially in the last 20 years or so, a ton of data in the emerging political science literature that shows that like this idea of like voting against our own interests, like it's not, like it's not true. Right? right. Voting behavior is much less correlated with people's immediate interests, even their economic interests, and much more correlated with their cultural identity. Right. And that has only become more true in the last uh, several decades, especially the last 20 years. And so I think it's it's easy to it's easy to look at that and say, like, oh, well, this would be good for rural hospitals why did a rural county vote against this 70-30? And it's, it, has, it has nothing to do with what we perceive as their interests are. It has a lot more to do with what the cultural identity of those people is. Does that make sense at all? It does. And even with this particular state question, there is legitimate concern that people had about putting it in the Constitution. So there may have been people who were like, I support the idea of doing this. I don't support the idea of putting it in the Constitution. And so right. there's a number of factors that go into why people make the decisions that they do. And I agree with you, Scott, that it shouldn't be painted as a blanket. People just vote against their own interests. Yeah. No. Like, uh, I, I, I actually... I actually agree. I don't think that a constitutional remedy is the best way to deal with this question. And I had a, I had a couple of people text me. I actually had one guy text me on election night. It was like, 
hey, so uh, since the vote was so close, does 802 still pass? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. it does. That's how votes work. Is that it passes number one? But he was like, he was like, I support the expansion. Like it's something we should do. I just really think it should have been done legislatively. And I was like, yeah, you and me both, bro. But like, it's been ten years and they haven't done shit. So well, here, here we are. Right, and so that's the thing. And there's been a few articles about that as kind of post-mortem from the election saying, you know, there are a number of things that the people want that the legislature has talked about but not acted on, right? Medicaid expansion, medical marijuana, criminal justice reform. And after years of inaction, the people say, like, we're going to take it up for ourselves. I mean, after 10 years, like, the entire legislature is turned over in that in that time period. And you're having to constantly re-educate new lawmakers on an issue and reconvince them that this is the right thing to do and at some point you're like you know what like we're gonna spend the money and just do it ourselves yeah so it's really a symptom of asking like why did those who built the state question take the approach that they did Mm -hmm. and we're seeing more people approaching things for constitutional changes because there's dissatisfaction with the legislature's inability to act with things that the public are demanding. Right. And so, um, or things so that it's, it's, it's go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, or, or things that the legislature refuses to, to work on, right? Like they, mm-hmm. they are not going to do anything that makes their job more difficult, like ethics reporting or, you know, independent redistricting those kinds of things anything that, that takes power away from them they are not going to do and or the sh- second that the wind blows they're going to be willing to make changes we saw that happen with 780 and 781 right the the will of the people was strong in wanting these reforms in criminal justice yet we're still seeing the legislature try each session to mm. do things to undermine that state question and so um state questions and constitutional changes are definitely reflections of dissatisfaction with the legislature and, and maintaining the will of the people. And I should say too, you know, to say that like it's been 10 years and they haven't done shit, like that's a little bit of an oversimplification because there have been people like um, uh, Senator McCourtney, um, um, Marcus McIntyre uh, out of Duncan, who have for the last year for sure and probably really the last t- couple of years there was a working group that had been doing a lot to look at trying, trying to figure out a way to do a Medicaid expansion that could, you know, that could pass both houses that would pass muster with the governor. Like I, it is, it's too simple to say that there just hasn't been any work on it because especially in the last couple of years, there has been, um, I think largely because there was a recognition that if they didn't get something done, this is what was going to happen is that it was going to pass and become enshrined in the constitution where it becomes much harder to modify um, but the deal is that when you're going to do something through the legislature, especially something as complicated and fraught with uh, passionate feelings on both sides of the issue as Medicaid expansion or anything related to do with healthcare, it's going to take a long time, you know? And so maybe with another 18 months to work on it, they could have gotten something done, but people are just, people are tired of waiting. So well, I, and- I don't, I don't want to make it sound like there was no work going on to try and do this but i think it was too little too late right and again they did it they passed it they passed the funding it was happening and then the governor vetoed it even though in this you know just months after he had asked for it so like clearly the will was out there somewhere 
and then something changed. And I think that's the frustration where it's like, listen, either do it or don't do it, but don't don't lead me, you know, yeah. lead me on like this. And so what happens I now? Think, and I think that's the problem that we see is that politics get in the way so many times of great efforts. And it's sad that there is distrust among voters and, and, and advocates because of that. So it's important that the legislature take that into consideration that um, that political courage is necessary. Otherwise, people, the, the people are going to take things into their own hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the next thing I think people ask about with 802 is implementation, right? So I believe the way it's written is that within um, within 90 days, the healthcare authority has to like submit a revised plan to the feds, basically saying, you know, here's our Medicaid plan, and it's just the expansion plan. And then next session, they will have to fund it. However, they're going to do it, and there's discussion this year about how to do it. Next year's going to be tighter, right? Um, and uh, for everything, and so they'll have to they'll have to fund it. It's constitutionally required at this point, um, mm-hmm. and so that is not ideal. Like in this environment, it means that in order to fund this, we have to not fund something else or some other things, and so or the- or <laughs> that is. That is not the only option. Andrew. This is true. There this are true. two. There are two mechanisms that the state government can use when they want to fund something and they feel like they don't have enough money. They can cut spending from another area that is appropriated. That is one option that they have. They can also try to increase the revenue that is brought into the state treasury. Right. They could raise taxes, but they're not going to. And no. arguably, that's no, they, not the right thing to do even this year. I, w- I would agree with both of those things. However, <laughs> I have decided that one of my many soapboxes is going to be anytime anybody says, well, I mean, in order to fund this, you're going to have to take money from something else. No, bullshit. That's not the only answer. You just won't consider doing anything else, which is your prerogative. But I'm not going to let people just get away and be like, oh, man, the, the amount of money that comes in every year is fixed. We can't do anything about that. Like. Well- it's they're still taking money from something that something is just you right and me it's taxpayers well and it's an interesting thing too because the state government is also waiting on what supports will come from washington dc to help states as the economy continues to recover mm-hmm. so it'll be interesting to see if there's if there's even a way for Oklahoma to bring in additional funds through mm. whatever means are appropriated by the federal government to then kind of um, at least in this this coming season to, to patchwork at least that hundred million so that way we won't have to, to have a hole in the budget or have to cut agencies in order to expand Medicaid and provide health coverage for folks. Yeah. So most of the election went as expected, right? Most incumbents um, kept their seats. Most people who were favored to win their primaries, like, for example, uh, the Democratic primary for state Senate, or not for, for U.S. Senate against for in, James Inhofe's seat, um, Senator Inhofe's seat, Abby Broyles was the leading Democrat, and so she won her primary. 
likewise Kendra Horn won her primary. <laughs> um, um, but in, in that race, in CD5, um, the Republican primary had nine contenders, and it's going to a runoff. With Carrie Neese and Stephanie Weiss. Right. What, um, was that surprising to you guys? Um, those two were the, the front runners for about the whole time yeah that many republicans expected to get to a runoff because there were so many within that race i don't think anybody expected to have a winner now what happens in the next couple months or actually because it's july now so within the next six seven weeks you know only time will tell because it's going to be a race to how do you get to the the far right conservatives in this primary season so we'll see what it looks like because Terry and um, Stephanie are on par when it comes to even like fundraising and things. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see um, yeah, I, who Republicans select to advance. I think it'll be interesting. Um, Terry Neese has some personal wealth that she could throw in the race that I think um, Stephanie Bice does not. And so it'll be the onus on fundraising, I think, probably falls a little heavier on Bice's shoulders. And well, for- because she not only has to combat Terry Neese's personal spending, I don't. I don't think there's any reason to think Club for Growth. I mean, Club for Growth dropped what, like two hundred grand? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, three hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, several hundred thousand dollars in the last two weeks. I mean, just just carpet bombing Stephanie Bice um, over over her vote for ten ten XX that uh, was the the education funding bill from a couple of years ago. I don't. I don't think there's any reason to think that's not going to continue. So she has to combat Terry Nice as well as, you know, I, I think it's, I'm curious to see if there's any national group that's going to jump in and kind of prop up Senator Bice um, with, with some outside, some outside help. Yeah. I, historically speaking, just for reference for listeners uh, in, in races where it goes to a runoff almost every time the person that finished with fewer votes after the primary comes back to win in the, in the runoff. So in this situation, Terry Neese received more votes than Stephanie Bice did. And so according to history, Bice is in a better spot. Um, the only exception to that was actually Mary Fallon in like 2006 in the race. And so, so there's, there's that precedent. However, those history did not have COVID-19, right? It didn't have Trump as president. It doesn't have these other like dyn things dynamics that are affecting our electoral process this year yeah the the other thing too i mean is that just is that just on the republican race because i know congresswoman horn she went to a runoff with tom gill two years ago but she was ahead so and she and she won so i I need to go back and look i don't remember if it's just republican side and it, it it when I looked at it, it might be a factor of how, if for races that are like within a certain percentage. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I, I was not surprised to see that go to a runoff just from the sheer number of candidates. I was a little surprised. I was a little surprised to see that it was Terry Nice who was in front, um, by a, by a decent margin over Senator Bice. Um, I think, you know, I think Senator Bice is probably the establishment candidate. I think she was, she was the first to declare, um, you know, I think she has, I think she has a, a reputation in the state legislature that she's proud of as someone who tries to get things done. Um, so I, I was a little, I was a little surprised to see. It's, it's, okay. Go ahead, Bailey. I think one of the um, 
challenges with Stephanie Bice is that she was typically painted as a moderate Republican. And when you're running in a primary election, your goal is to touch your base, <laughs> right? right? And so those areas where she was pinned as the moderate were not helpful in a primary with somebody who can connect themselves directly to like Donald Trump. So you saw a lot of Terry Neese commercials where she was like, we got to protect and defend Donald Trump, vote Terry Neese. Um, and that's a little tough when you try to build this reputation as being the moderate candidate. And so she had to do some maneuvering that made a lot of people scratch their head, but it is a primary election. So for me, it didn't, uh, it, it, it did make sense. Yeah. That Terry Neese had such a far lead because she was able to connect directly to um, to the conservative base. Right. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the fall because at least at the moment, and maybe this changes, you know, there's a lot of stuff that can happen. And, you know, uh, anymore in politics, four months is an absolute eternity. But I mean, President Trump is uh, President Trump is pretty far underwater in terms of approval nationwide. He's he's above he's above water in Oklahoma generally, but he's underwater in CD five specifically. Um, um, more people disapprove of the job he's doing in CD five than approve, um, and so I wonder, you know, I wonder if if Terry wins the nomination, is her general election strategy to try? and turn out that base and see if she can, if she can just win with the base or does she try to pivot it all to a more, to a more kind of conventional general election strategy where you tap, tack a little bit to the center. And I, I don't know Terry at all. So I have no idea what she's going to do. Um, you know, I would say Bailey, the only reason that I, I would say I'm surprised a little bit because you're, I think, I think you're, I agree a hundred percent like that the center vice has this reputation as a moderate, and it's one that puzzles me a little bit because I feel like on the issues where like being a moderate Republican could matter, it seems like she's not right. Like she's not a moderate on abortion votes. She's not a moderate on gun votes. She, with exception of 1010XX, she's not a moderate on revenue votes. Like I've always just kind of wondered like where that reputation came from and like, why is it, is it because she did alcohol? Is the fact that she did alcohol? Is that the reason that she has this reputation? That's the that's a core part of it, because she did get a lot of credit for um, leading the charge on what they call liquor modernization is the way that it was phrased. Um, and then also like the tax credits on film was another thing that a lot of people credit her for um, some areas of criminal justice. And so those few areas, people were um, lifting that label of, of being the moderate, um, uh, pragmatic. Sure. Republican. Sure. But. Uh, when you're running in a campaign <laughs> right. and then you're trying to position yourself as, as the most conservative, it does uh, provide mixed messaging that will be complicated for her. Should she make it out of this runoff and go into the general, especially to your point that Donald Trump isn't strongly favored in this congressional district. And so she'll really have to, to, to figure out what that strategy will be if it is trying to recover, you know, the, the model or if it's going to try to appeal to the base on what that looks like. In, in yeah, what yeah. else were you on CD5? So there were three three incumbents that were ousted, um, two Republicans and one Democrat. Um, notably, I think, in, in on the Republican side of the aisle, um, Representative Lundy Kiger from POTO uh, lost. He was a one-term legislator, 
and he lost to the man who held the seat before him, Representative Rick West, um, had that seat, and then he did not run in 2018 uh, and decided to come back and run again this year. And uh, and so he won that primary, and so he will go to the general. I think he's got a Democratic opponent then. Uh, and then uh, House District 11, Representative Daryl Fisher from Bartlesville, he lost his primary to challenger Wendy Stearman. I don't know anything about her yet. Uh, and then in Oklahoma City, as I think many of our listeners know, uh, Representative Jason Dunnington from House District 88 uh, lost his primary to uh, challenger Maury Turner. And I, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, it was uh, a, a fairly close race for the good part of the night. Um, and uh, so that's, I, it was, it's always fun. I, regardless of how anyone feels about a particular candidate, it's interesting, like on election night, seeing supporters of a given candidate like, their sense of excitement and relief. And in many cases, it's, it's, um, there's not like, it's always good when there's not a lot of bemoaning by the losing side, right? Yeah. Um, and so even, uh, so on this election scene, all of Mari's supporters, uh, on Twitter and, and Facebook, like post about it. people I, that we know who have worked in the campaign in 2018, you know, I, I try to make my way down to the Republican watch party to congratulate Governor Stitt when he won. Um, and that was my first time to go to a big convention party like that, which was a whole different ball game. <laughs> Very different than what we have. My first time going was when President Obama won re-election. Oh wow, that's a so I went. Oh. I was at the Republican um, watch party when when that happened. So that was interesting. That's a whole different ball game in a very different way. Um, there was there was I didn't expect there to be cake. There was there was cake. People were serving cake at like a wedding, and I was like, I mean, I guess it makes sense. I just didn't expect cake in the Coca Cola or Bricktown Event Center. Anyway, now the next step, of course, is things going to a runoff. Those races that are required that'll be in August, and we'll talk more about that as we get a little bit closer um, as we begin to gear up for the big show in November. Well, before we go into that, I and. and- Please let me know if you guys have already talked about this, but we have to give props and credit to those who made the decision to absentee vote this election cycle yeah, because yeah. we had a record number of people participate using vote by mail in this primary election. And the election board, uh, when I went through my training, um, said that this felt like a general election because of the amount of volume that they felt uh, with requesting absentee ballots and voting in that way. And so I, uh, well, it was like well over 100,000 Oklahomans participated in that manner. And there would have been more if people didn't get their ballots so late and there wasn't confusion about when the deadline was to yep. submit your ballot. I even had people come up to us at the poll and was like, well, we got our absentee ballot and I have it right here. What do I do with this? And, and so um, it was really neat to see um, how that really shaped the election. And I mean, vote by mail was an important mechanism to get state question 802 passed. Oh, yeah. And so without um, vote by mail, it doesn't pass. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I thought that was an interesting take from this particular election cycle with our first election in the COVID 19 pandemic to have such a high voter turnout with vote by mail. 
it, did y'all know? I didn't know this. Um, so, you know, we have the, you can do absentee and you can get it notarized, right? Or for this election, they let you send it in with a copy of your driver's license. But there are some people, and I think it's mostly voters who check that they need to vote absentee because they have a, a physical disability. Um, but you can also, there are ballots, absentee ballots that are just, you fill it out, sign it under penalty of perjury and have two witnesses. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And why can't we just do that? For everybody, right? Well, you but in, it, you get two witnesses, and that's voter it. No, fraud. no, no notary, no copies, just two two witnesses. I even, I mean, even states like Colorado, they don't they don't even bother with that. I mean, if you're gonna if you don't trust the voter themselves, then having two people sign it is not changing that, right? I mean, I guess it's just I don't know. I'm sick of the nonsense. Like, make it easy for people to vote. It is ridiculous that the there's clear data on this, and they still refute it. But that's not uncommon in this day and age. Plenty of things are backed by data that they, one side or the other, disagrees with. But it does make the case that Oklahomans can vote this way, and the election remain secure and ethical. And so that was pretty neat for for me to to see. And I hope that that's something we'll continue seeing through the rest of the year as we are unsure what happens with the pandemic. But even thereafter, whenever, you know, our societies adjust to, you know, developing how our norms will be, hopefully more people will see that this is an easy way to participate. It gives me another option um, and it ensures that more people can vote. That's right. Yeah, and you can still, you can go ahead now and sign up, request an absentee ballot for August and or November. You have to just register once a year and you can pick all the elections that year or just one. Uh, and so if you didn't vote by mail this time, but you'd like to, you can go to the election board website and do that right now. And if you need a notary, let me know. I'm a notary. I'm happy to uh, happy to help out with that if our schedules align. And hopefully, you know, things like having all the banks and credit unions continuing to offer that service broadly um, will become more of the norm, and that would be great. Um, I want to give major props out to the state election board. Um, like it seems, and and Bailey, I want to kind of follow this up by having you tell us what your experience was working as a poll worker. But it seems, from what I can tell, that the election board did a really phenomenal job of administering this, keeping it organized, getting results in a timely manner, and also making sure that it was done safely. So. Major, major props to all the folks at the the state and county election boards for doing, I think, a, a great job conducting the election, number one, and not making us wait until, you know, the end of July for results. Yes, but, definitely agree. Yeah. Bailey, what was it like for you as a poll worker? How was that? How how was that experience? So I went to a training on June 19th and I just called the election board and said, hey, I'd like to sign up for a training. And they said, can you come on this day, this day, this day? And then they said it's from 9 to 12. Um, and I believe they did have some online options, but I went in person. And within, like, we did it about three, three and a half hours. And they went through the main information that was relevant to Oklahoma County. Um, and they taught us some really interesting information um, about 
what you need to bring as valid IDs um, and some specific examples of types that aren't just Oklahoma licenses that we can look out for. And they even mentioned that we could use our um, OK uh, mobile ID app as a form of valid voter identification. And so I learned some really interesting tips on, like as a, as a voter, I learned a lot of great information that I think would be helpful for the public to know. Um, and so that I, I really enjoy the efficiency of the training. And then right afterward, they gave us a certificate and they said we would either receive a letter in the mail or we'd get a phone call about, you know, when we would be um, assigned to a poll. Um, there's also information about what the protocols would be during COVID. So like things as simple but important as wiping down every pen um, that's been used for the voters to, to vote with. Um, and then supplying, I mean, we had tons of hand sanitizer and wipes and things like that at my polling location. And so I'm pretty sure it was consistent around the state as far as making sure everyone was equipped with um, masks, um, hand sanitizer for the public and the workers, um, and then the wipes so we could wipe down chairs and, and the voting machine and the pens and things on a regular basis. Um, there's a couple of things that I would recommend to the election board, and I plan on writing a letter about a few things that I experienced um, because many of the poll workers um, have been doing this for a long time. So there were people that I was working with who have done this for like 20 years. And there isn't a retraining every year or like a refresher for folks. So there may have been people who are used to doing things a certain way um, instead of the way that um, I was trained. And so luckily um, I was assigned at a, a precinct where there were five of us. Normally there's just three people, a judge, a clerk, and the inspector. Um, but the person, the I guess the fifth person that was there with me, um, we coincidentally trained on the same day. <laughs> and so we both were young. Um, and so a lot of the things that we learned were fresh on our minds. And we saw a lot of things that happened that were contrary to what we were taught. So the biggest thing was there was a young woman who was um, born in 1999, like in her early 20s. And she had a seven month old baby with her. And she was told, well, she went to one location um, and was told to come to my precinct. And the standard is if you don't see someone in the book or they don't have the proper ID or whatever the case is, you tell folks to um, call the election board to get the right information so we could either steer them to the right location or you're supposed to give people the option of provisionally voting by a provisional ballot. Right. Um, so people aren't supposed to leave uh, without voting if they want to vote. And um, instead of giving her that option to provisionally vote, um, the poll workers that we were working with were adamant about not letting her provisionally vote and had her fill out a voter registration card and sent her on her way. And well, so um, I witnessed that uh, <laughs> form of voter disenfranchisement, uh, which was hard for me because she was a young black woman as well. And so it was hard to watch a black woman be disenfranchised. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, there were other little things um, about, for example, for the the poll workers are supposed to use the time 
on the cell phones given to the inspector um, to tell what time it is because when it gets closer to seven o'clock, it's based on the time on that phone because it's the same time for mm -hmm. every single precinct across the state. And there were moments where people were wanting to look on their cell phones instead of on that time, I mean, on that cell phone, but uh, because myself and the other woman who was there uh, were freshly trained, we were able to constantly remind <laughs> the poll workers, this is the way we're supposed to do it. But for them, it was, we've been doing this for a long time and this is the way we've always done it. It was even yeah. like, we're going to pull down signage at 530. <laughs> exactly. So there were a whole lot of things that were happening on the ground that concerned me. But I have some recommendations to the election board that I'm going to put in writing that I hope that they'll consider because um, as things continue to update, it's vital that the experience that people have at the polls are consistent at every single precinct, regardless of where people are, because we're talking about people's opportunity to vote. And so one concern that I have is, you know, what if that young lady says that was really difficult? They gave me the runaround and I didn't even get to vote. I don't want to vote again. Right. That's a lot yeah. of voter in the state of Oklahoma. So, so uh, there's a lot of things that I hope that they'll. And then even the idea of people were getting their absentee ballots on Saturday. Somebody said they got theirs on Monday, like the day before the election. And yeah. so they didn't know whether or not they could even send that in and, and get in on time or so. Um, and I know someone who got their absentee ballot late and has had um, surgeries and wouldn't be able to walk into the polls. And so didn't even get to vote because of how late they got their absentee ballot. And so yeah. there's, there's some things that we could do to adjust to make sure that people have, you know, the, the adequate experiences to participate in the elections. But it's also the election board is um, operating on a lean budget. <laughs> yeah. It's it has a small but mighty staff, and so I know that they were working really hard to make sure that they could uh, provide um, the the best election possible. But there are some areas that that I hope that we can improve upon in training precinct workers. So I'm going to amend my earlier statement um, and say thank you to the Oklahoma State Election Board for working so hard to provide a safe and fair and accurate election. But also, can we please fix these things that I mean, because if like what you're saying, Bailey, I mean, if that happened in your precinct, you got to assume that one, it's not the only time that that's happened. Right. Or the only time it happened this election. And two, when you talk about state question 802, right, there's roughly 2,000 precincts, but 1,800, 1900 precincts across the state of Oklahoma. So if the scene that you described with this young woman not being allowed to vote, right, if that happens three times at every precinct across the state of Oklahoma, just three times throughout the whole day, um, that's the difference in state question 802 passing and not passing, right? Like, because like, I've never been a poll worker, and I've never done poll worker training. And I know that you have the right to cast a provisional ballot. Like, what was their justification and who you said there's a clerk, a judge and an inspector. Is there like a boss? Like who is the one who gets to decide? Yeah. And so the way it's designed, the judge is the person who is looking at um, the list of voters in the book. And they're the ones that verify the license or the voter ID of the person. And they check off what type of ballots they have and then have the voter sign in the book. Then there's a clerk who issues out the ballots. So they're the, the keeper of the ballots to make sure that the voter gets um, the right ballots for the elections they're eligible to participate in. And then there's an inspector 
who oversees and sets up the voting machine. Um, and they also oversee people who have um, absentee, who were who received absentee ballots, but didn't vote absentee so that they can sign that affidavit. Or they're there to help someone who may have a disability, or they're also there to proctor the um, provisional ballot. And they didn't want to. They said, they, they literally, the, 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 the woman literally said that um, the vote doesn't count. So they just legally say, you know, they could fill out a provisional ballot, but the vote doesn't count. And they said that it takes an hour and a half to do, which is not true either. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was truly um, a battle for myself and the young woman who was trained about like, no, this is protocol. We are we are disenfranchising right. her by not administering um, a provisional ballot. And yeah. so because the election board was so busy, it was tough to even get somebody on the phone to be like, to set them straight, that, right? right. So, I'm surprised there's um, not like a like a book, like a manual or something that's like, well, refer to page seven, paragraph four. It says explicitly, yeah. here's the protocol. Yeah, and I mean, it was really hard because the, at the end of the day, the person who's the inspector is the person that is in control of the area. But I mean, there were several things that we noticed that just weren't in line with what we were trained to do that happened in my precinct. And so, if that happened in my precinct. I can only imagine what has happened in other areas across the state. And so, um, so I I hope these are some areas that the, the election board will, will take seriously and and figure out how we can make sure that people are retrained or get that refresher to make sure that we're, we're doing things right. Yeah. If at some point, Bailey, you have the time and brain power to like write a blog post about your experience, we'd love to publish it on um, our website because uh, I think people yeah. would enjoy reading that and appreciate that perspective on things. So even if it's just a letter that, that you wrote or that you're going to write to the election board, that would be great as well. Certainly encourage anyone on here to take that opportunity because now was the time to get certified um, because they are in dire need of people being inspectors and judges and helping to uh, proctor elections in, in different precincts because there is a shortage of people to to help run elections. And so um, the training is really, really easy. Um, takes a few hours and then you're certified and then they'll let you know you're paid um, $87. Now it is an all day thing. <laughs> so you get there at 6.30 in the morning and then you don't leave until after seven. And so it depends on when the last voter shows up, but it's really worth the time. I saw a lot of nice people and people's experiences at the polls also help determine whether people are going to be frequent voters or not. And so we really need informed and kind people who will give folks a positive experience in voting and participating so that we can um, maintain the spirit of, of civic engagement in this state. And so that was one thing I was excited to do was smile at people and say, hi, you know, and ask them their party affiliation to find them in the book and sign a name, give them instructions. And thank people for voting. So I had a lot of people say, thank you so much for being here and doing this. And I'm like, no, thank you for taking the time out to vote. And so um, it was really, it was a, it was a affirming moment of civic engagement to be able to experience and witness that. So I definitely want to participate again. But in order for these things to not happen, we need more people trained to participate as poll workers. And so I definitely encourage folks to call your county election board today. Well, not today. 
because they may be closed at this point. <laughs> but <laughs> sometime next week or in the future before the August election and say, hey, I want to sign up and be trained to be a poll worker. Yes. Well, thank you, Bailey, for your service and doing that. And thanks for your um, for sharing your experience. That's I think it's super illuminating to me, and I hope our listeners appreciate it as well. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Bailey, thank you for being here. Thank you, Andy, for having me, as always. Scott, thank you for being here as well. Wouldn't miss it, dude. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for being here as well. I hope that you have a safe and happy holiday weekend. And presumably, you may not listen to this until after the holiday weekend. So, hope it all worked out for you. Be well. Wear a mask. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts uh, and on Spotify. Tell your friends. Send a little quick tweet. Just link that. Link this post. Send your tweet and share it on there or on Facebook. Whatever. Instagram is cool too. Uh, you can find us on all three of those platforms. We are at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Nelson. Bailey is at Bailey M. Perkins. And Andy is at Andy OKC. We are a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Uh, our show is produced by Scott, Bailey, and me. And our theme music is called Rhino Funk by artist So Down. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage in the government. We encourage you to get involved any way you can, including being a whole worker. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week.